This is The Sidebar for the week of June 16, 2017. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. So I flew back uh, and uh, met with my deputy that night, and he said there'd been a break-in at the Democratic National Committee headquarters. And my immediate reaction was, Oh, my God, what has Chuck Colson done to us now? June 17th marks the 45th anniversary of the Watergate break-in. This week, we revisit the first months of the scandal with former White House counsel John Dean. John Dean, you were two years into your tenure as White House counsel. Where were you on June 17th, 1972? When and how did you first learn about the Watergate break-in? As it happened, I was in the, in the Philippines, in Manila, giving a graduation address at the request of the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs, which is now uh, the Drug Enforcement Agency, DEA. Uh, how I got selected is a little fuzzy, but they needed a high-level person, so they gave me a speech and just asked me to go over and read it. Uh, I left on a on a Thursday and was to come back on a Sunday. And when I landed back in San Francisco on Sunday after a trip across the Dateline, I was pretty wiped out and called my deputy and said, "Listen, I'm going to stay and catch a." I'm going to sleep all day today and be back on Monday. And he said, John Ehrlichman, who had been my predecessor uh, as White House counsel, was looking for me. John was also the uh, probably you know the number two man at the White House. He was in charge of domestic policy. So I flew back uh, and uh, met with my deputy that night, and he said there had been a break-in at the Democratic National Committee headquarters. And my immediate reaction was, oh, my God, what has Chuck Colson done to us now? Uh, When I went into the office on Monday morning, uh, the the Washington Post had a pretty good story about uh, this fellow McCord, who had been at the re-election committee, and the whole uh, story of what had happened at the Watergate. And I started receiving a series of calls. And one of those calls was from Jeb Magruder, who was the number two man at the reelection committee. And he said I needed to talk to Gordon Liddy, uh, who was responsible for the Watergate break-in. And I said, why do you want me to talk to him? And he said, because I can't. He said, Gordon threatened my life recently, and I don't think I can communicate with him. And I, I... about that same time, John Ehrlichman called me, and he wanted me to talk to Chuck Colson because the name Howard Hunt had come up uh, in the notebook or address book of one of the burglars. And uh, uh, Ehrlichman was very concerned that somehow Hunt, was, Hunt and Colson were tied into this whole thing, and he was trying to put together the pieces. So I said to John, I said, well, I have this call from Magruder, and he says, it's Liddy's fault. Should I go talk to Liddy? And he said, yes, and report back to me. To make a long story short, Liddy confessed. He said it was his men. He was foolish to do the operation, uh, that uh, he shouldn't have used uh, James McCord, who was the security chief at the reelection committee, uh, that uh, 
Magruder had cut his budget so badly that he had to find somebody in-house to be his, what he called his wire man who would do the, uh, the, the attempted bugging, or I guess it was successful, and they went in to repair uh, the defective bug that wasn't in the right office and the right location. So they, uh, that's why they, he said they had gone back in, and while in there, there they tried to take photographs. Uh, he also told me that on our way back, I, I met with him on 17th Street, uh, right beside the White House. Uh, I, did, I decided I didn't want him in my office, and so I intercepted him before he got to the uh, in, into the White House complex. Uh, and he said as we walked back up 17th Street after confession, a couple things. He said, you should know, John, that while I was working at the White House, for Ehrlichman and Bud Krogh, I did an operation uh, where we broke into Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office, and uh, we were looking for information about whether he had ties to the Russians uh, and what he might do next. But what the point of the story I've got to tell you is that I two of the men I used at the Ellsberg operation I used at the Watergate, and they're now in jail, uh, in the D.C. jail, where they were all arrested at the at the Watergate, and we got to get all those people out. So that that's how it started, uh, and I was baptized by fire in it. I remember going back and telling Ehrlichman the story, who didn't seem particularly happy that I had learned. Today, I know why he was very unhappy I'd learned about it, because he had authorized in writing the Ellsberg operation uh, with the on a, on a memo where he had said, uh, okay, if done with the assurance, it's not traceable to the White House. And here now we had an event that made that prior event potentially traceable to the White House. And that's that's when, the, the, you know, I think that, that moment, uh, it was pretty clear to me uh, after reading the paper that morning that a cover-up was in place. Uh, it already started over the weekend when the re-election committee had issued a statement where they said they had no knowledge of who McCord was working for or anything to do with this uh, terrible act that had happened at the DNC. Uh, and I, I learned uh, quickly that from Magruder that uh, Haldeman and Ehrlichman had approved that statement. So uh, it, it was just a cover-up from day one and moment one. Well, the question so often asked, because Richard Nixon was facing an easy re-election, he ultimately won 49 out of 50 states, and this break-in took place in June of 1972. Why? What were they looking for? What was the motivation? Yeah. It's it's there's been a lot of mystery created about that, and and it's because I think uh, there's a a tendency to give uh, a level of sophistication to this operation that just didn't exist. These were bunglers. This was uh, they were going back in because they'd gone to the wrong office and the bug they'd put in hadn't didn't work, uh, and. As a matter of fact, I learned years later that they really were never reauthorized to go into the Watergate the second time, but rather Liddy had been scolded by uh, Mitchell, John Mitchell, the director of the 
the former attorney general and the director of the reelection campaign uh, for the you know the terrible quality of the stuff he was getting, notwithstanding the big budget he'd been given. Uh, so Liddy had taken it upon himself to go back in and try to fix what they'd done at the Watergate. Uh, they had originally gone in the Watergate in May, and that was a combination of, of, of things. Again, this is I have hindsight knowledge. I didn't learn this at the time. This took years to, 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 to come out. But they, it was a, largely a fishing expedition. They had heard, Magruder had heard, that Larry O'Brien had negative information about Nixon or uh, some of the Nixon people, uh, that he was trying to impress Haldeman with his skill and ability to get the kind of information the White House wanted. And he was also worried that if he didn't do something, Chuck Colson, who was close to Hunt, who was Liddy's partner, would take over this operation. And uh, as he ironically said to me when he admitted this, he said, you know, I, we were afraid that Colson would screw it up. And, and, and then here we screwed it up terribly. Uh, so there were a combination of reasons uh, that were not very sophisticated. What's interesting is the night they were arrested on June 17th uh, is traceable to the White House, whereas there is no, I've never seen a scintilla of evidence Anybody knew they were going to go into the Democratic National Committee headquarters. Uh, it, it, it is traceable to the White House uh, for if they had gone where they had planned that night. Their mission that night on June 17th when they were arrested was to go up to Capitol Hill and bug George McGovern's headquarters. Uh, McGovern being, of course, uh, the person that... Uh, that Nixon was running against the Democratic nominee, uh, and they, that was the target. And they were just stopping by the Watergate to fix this defective bug and to get one into Larry O'Brien's office. In fact, they actually got down ceiling panels before they were arrested uh, in O'Brien's suite. They hadn't, hadn't even made it there on the first uh, entry. So... The first, they're not, you know, they're just going there to repair a botched job, and their real mission is to go to McGovern's headquarters. And the reason I say this is traceable is because I found documents uh, when I did my book, The Nixon Defense, about what he knew and when he knew it. Uh, you can trace back to Nixon telling Haldeman uh, in probably the, the May, April, May, June period. Uh, I have it in the book, the date, but anyway, uh, not long before they do it. It must have been, it must have been late May or early June uh, that uh, to to put a plant in McGovern's office. Now he's not talking about a flower, but I also don't think Nixon was talking about electronic surveillance necessarily. But that's exactly the sort of thing Liddy would interpret, uh, because what happens next is McGovern. Uh, Haldeman gives the information to his aide, Gordon Strawn. Gordon Strawn calls Liddy, who he knows is in charge of intelligence at the re-election committee, to come over to his office and reads that he's to change his intelligence gathering from Muskie to McGovern. Uh, and that's where Liddy gets this order to go into McGovern's headquarters and to try to 
do some gather intelligence there. Uh, so that is traceable, and and that that actually makes more sense than the uh, Democratic National Committee. And John Dean, I know you have listened to the recordings, the conversations, the tapes from the Nixon White House. One in particular I want to get your reaction to. It was less than a week later on June 23rd, 1972, White House Chief of Staff Bob Haldeman telling the FBI not to go any further with its Watergate investigation, justifying it on national security grounds. And he told the president that he wanted to tell the FBI to stay the hell out of this. We don't want you to go any further on it. And the president said, "Uh uh-huh. You know, what's interesting about that tape on June 23rd is it will become the smoking gun tape. It'll become the, the evidence that Nixon knew. And what happened is as Nixon defended himself, uh, he began saying he had no knowledge of the cover-up, particularly after Haldeman, Ehrlichman, and myself were all fired on April 30th of 1973. And his defense increases because the intensity of Watergate increases. Remember, Watergate runs a long period of time, like 928 days from the time of the arrest on June 17th to the last verdict uh, in the last trial of Haldeman and Ehrlichman and John Mitchell. Um, So what happened on June 23rd uh, is very curious. The night before... I had met with the director of the FBI, the acting director, Pat Gray, who reported that they had found money, uh, cash, had been laundered through uh, Bernard Barker's bank account in Key Biscayne, where he was a realtor, uh, and returned somehow up to Washington. And no one was quite sure what this was, but the FBI was on it. Uh, I, I, when I came back from learning that from Pat Gray on the evening of the 22nd, I tried to reach Haldeman, uh, who was at a board meeting at the uh, Kennedy Center. Uh, not reaching him, I called John Mitchell, and he was very, he had just gotten a debriefing on Liddy's activities at the White House and had learned about the Ellsberg break in. I actually think that Mitchell, before that briefing, might have stepped forward and said, hey, this happened on my watch. You know, I wasn't paying attention to these guys. And he would have somehow taken some responsibility for it to try to cut it off. But now he realized it went right to the White House. He and Ehrlichman had a real personality problem uh, that only became more aggravated after he learned that they had sent Gordon Liddy over without telling anybody about his bizarre background and, and uh, his propensity to take an instruction that was an inch and push it out a mile uh, and do bizarre things that he thought he was James Bond when he wasn't quite Maxwell smart. Uh, so the, the, there was a, this and this real antipathy between these two people. That's actually how I get myself in the middle of the cover-up, because they don't trust each other, but they trust me, and I become the communications link between them. Anyway, Mitchell, Mitchell says <clears throat> this is a, this, none of this money that was found in Barker's account had anything to do with Watergate, as the prosecutors would later find out. He said it's a campaign 
contribution. And I said, well, you know, I talked to Henry Peterson, who's the head of the criminal division, a, a, a day earlier, and Peterson had, because I said, is this is the FBI investigation going to go into campaign contributions? Because I have no idea where that's going to go, but I know that there was a big rush before the new law became effective to get as much cash as possible, and I have, I just can imagine that's going to be a problem. And Peterson told me, he said, no, no, we we don't have authority uh, during an election year to investigate campaign contributions. So that's off the table. So I reported that to Mitchell, and Mitchell said, listen, what you should do, John, is get a hold of Bob Haldeman. I told him that I had not reported this to Haldeman. He said, tell Haldeman to call in Vernon Walters of the new deputy director of the uh, CIA, who Nixon had just appointed, and that uh, tell Vernon Walters that they the CIA should enforce the delimitation agreement regarding this money in Mexico that uh, part of had had come in uh, through Barker's account, and the F, that's what the FBI was was tracing, and they wanted to interview these people in Mexico. We know today that there was actually a contributor from Texas who had an operation in Mexico, and for his own reasons, apparently none of which were illegal, had used a Mexican account and a Mexican attorney to send cash, uh, which was was legal at that time, uh, to the re-election committee, and here it had ended up being washed by... Uh, by Liddy uh, through one of the uh, through one of the burglars' accounts because he had he did move money from time to time as a real estate broker. Uh, so uh, all from from all this convoluted stuff. Anyway, uh, what happens on the 23rd is I call Haldeman the morning of the 23rd and tell him that Mitchell thinks the FBI should invoke the delimitation agreement, which I'd never even heard of. The delimitation agreement it was an understanding where the FBI and the CIA did not investigate each other's activities. And Mitchell may have legitimately thought this was CIA money and not known uh, the full implications of it. I don't know that to, for a fact. It may have also been just a cover. But he knew that Liddy and Hunt had gotten CIA assistance uh, and that it was just going to create all kinds of problems if the FBI, which had a, a, a pretty good uh, antipathy towards the CIA, and these two agencies didn't get along very well, uh, got into all this activity. So I explained this. I take Haldeman through all this. Today we have his notes. Uh, in fact, I use them in one of the programs I teach based on Watergate and the smoking gun tape. Uh, and Haldeman just wrote down what I said and repeated from Mitchell, uh, and literally the president buzzes him while we're talking. He says, i got to go. He takes his notes and, and jumps up and, and goes in and explains this all to the president. What's interesting is, far beyond what Mitchell and I had told Haldeman, Haldeman obviously is enchanted with this idea and he's, he's selling it, you can hear him in the conversation, to Nixon as a way 
to end the Watergate investigation. He takes it that way beyond campaign contributions uh, and that potential and the, and the delimitation agreement uh, to a device to get the FBI to stop investigating Watergate. And, and Nixon, in turn, takes it another step and says, you know, let's do this thing and uh, tell the CIA that they shouldn't get into investigating Howard Hunt because it will unravel the Bay of Pigs, which was an embarrassment uh, for the CIA because it had been botched. And Howard Hunt had actually been involved in the Bay of Pigs as a CIA operative in earlier days. So all these forces come together in this tape, uh, and uh, the tape is the tape. The recording is made. Uh, Haldeman get enlists Ehrlichman to be with him in Ehrlichman's office when they call the CIA director and deputy director in. Uh, neither of which have been just only the deputy director have been suggested by Mitchell, and uh, they lay it on. And, uh, indeed, Vernon Walters will go over and try to get Pat Gray, the acting director, uh, to not in, not to, uh, investigate this Mexican money. Uh, apparently, they narrowed it down and, and did not push as far as either Haldeman or Nixon had initially reacted in the, on, on the tape when they made the request to the CIA because it, it's, it's limited to the Mexican money. And they hold that up for a few days before the CIA said, well, we really can't find any connection uh, to this, so we're, we, we, can't give a, we can't invoke the delimitation agreement. But I'm wondering during this whole time then, uh, the summer and fall of 1972, what was going through your mind, and were you worried that the cover-up was going to unravel? Well, you know, what's interesting is I just want to have one footnote to the, the smoking gun tape. When it's discovered, when it comes out, because the Supreme Court uh, in July of uh, 74 forces Nixon to release his tapes, he's, he knows he's all over this tape showing, uh, doing things that look like and, and are cover-up. And he has built his whole defense on the fact he had no knowledge of the cover-up until I told him in March of 1973. He, he's just lied. And so what happens is when that tape surfaces, he's caught in the ultimate lie because he's, he's gone on television. He said, I've, I have lied in front of the Senate when I've t- said that uh, I've told him these things and, and so on and so forth. Uh, so he doesn't get nailed on obstruction of justice where he loses the last of his support with the, with the smoking gun tape, which is an obstruction of justice tape, is the lie uh, catches him. Uh, anyway, you, you said, how, how am I reacting about the cover-up? Initially, I have no real concern. While I had told Ehrlichman uh, right after Liddy uh, confessed, I said, John, to my knowledge, you have no background in the criminal law. I want to assure you I have none. And maybe we should get somebody over here on, on my staff, because there's nobody on my staff either has that background, so we don't make some kind of dumb mistake. And he absolutely uh, says, no, we're not bringing in any criminal lawyers. We're not going to commit any crimes. And we're not going to get involved in any criminal conduct. Well, we did make stupid mistakes. I Initially, when, the, when they start paying 
uh, Liddy and the people involved in the break-in, it's cast as a defense fund. There were lots of defense funds in that era. Uh, Anti-war demonstrators who were being prosecuted had defense funds. The Berrigan brothers had defense funds. Uh, There were defense funds back, I was aware of historically, back to the Scottsboro Boys and what have you. That didn't strike me as wrong, and it's not until after the election that I realized what we're doing is stupid and criminal. Uh, What happened is Chuck Colson recorded Howard Hunt uh, right after the election, and that's one of their first conversations. And Hunt is calling to complain that the money that they're being paid is not coming in large enough sizes or fast enough, and uh, that that they better do it or this whole thing is going to break apart. Uh, And he keeps talking about the ready meaning the money, not uh, not being there while there are promises. Well, I, Colson is thrilled with this tape because he's got Hunt saying that he had nothing to do and had no advanced knowledge of the Watergate break-in. I hear this tape, and I hear something very different. I hear quid pro quo. I said, I think this is either bribery or it's, we're paying these guys to be silent uh, is what they think. And if that's true, that can't be right. That's when I let my fingers do the walking in the criminal code until I found 18 U.S.C. 1503, the obstruction statute, and also the federal conspiracy statute, which is 18 U.S.C. 371. I learned about the criminal law the hard way. I was on the wrong side of the law. Uh, and and uh, interesting, my reaction at that point is I'd been I'd had kind of mixed feelings. I was trying to help out as best I could and and do what I could. Now I'm committed to the cover-up. I realize this thing has got to work or we're all going to go to jail. Uh, and I that's my initial frame of mind. I never understood that until about five years ago when I ran into the work of Daniel Kahneman and, and uh, his, his original partner, Amos Traversky, who developed something called the prospect theory. And the prospect theory tells you how you make decisions, and when you're in what they describe as the loss frame, where you have no attractive alternatives, you make highly irrational decisions, and you do it with great regularity. The testing on this shows it it has been replicated so many times, I'm convinced it's human nature, uh, that we make dumb decisions where we're in in bad positions. And uh, what got me out of the loss frame and the stupidity of what I was doing was when Hunt sent a message to, directly to me for the first time that he wanted $120,000. And I said, this is just, this, this is just insane what we're doing. Uh, and this is about the same time that Nixon had started calling on me eight months into the cover-up to uh, talk to me directly rather than through Haldeman and Ehrlichman about the cover-up. And so I realized that he, he, he trusts me, and I'm uncomfortable with the cover-up uh, by this time and, 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 and think we're making mistakes. So after I try to figure out how much he knows or doesn't know, I realize he doesn't really know this, what's going on in the detail he should, or at least that's my impression. 
And so I lay it on him, and I tell him there's a cancer on the presidency on March 21st to try to blow the whole thing up, uh, but fail. <laughs> I, I, that's when I, the morning I really thought I met Richard Nixon later because I found out, you know, he wasn't, I, I was convinced when I raised one problem after another problem, it's about an hour and oh, almost, almost two hours, hour and 50-minute conversation. First hour, I am just telling him one bit of bad news after the next, after the next, after the next. Uh, and his reactions are, are catching my breath, literally. I, I, I can hear the angst in my voice on the tape. Uh, as it happened, I, I seem to sit right over top of microphones every time I'm in the Oval Office. So you can get down to the nuance of, of hearing. Uh, I'm, I just kind of groan when he responds to some of these things. But I you didn't know him, you were being recorded, correct? No, no, I had no idea I was being recorded. The only people who, there were just a handful of people who knew of the recording system. Uh, I will later suspect I'm being recorded and report that to the, to the Senate, uh, and that will result in getting unraveled. But at that initially, I, I have no idea he's recording it. But anyway, in, in, on March 21st, I'm telling him, you know, uh, Mr. President, Bud Krogh, uh, who had been involved with the Ellsberg break-in, uh, uh, had told me he thought he'd committed perjury. Uh, and I explained that to Nixon. He said, well, John, perjury's a tough rap to prove. Uh, and he goes through that. When I tell him that Hunt wants $120,000 yesterday, uh, he asked me, well, and I, and I say, this is just the start. No telling how much these people will ask. And he asked me, well, how much could they want? And I, and I pulled what I thought then was a pretty hefty number that would turn, just guessing. Uh, no, I, I never tried to think about what, what it would be. I, but I said it could be a million dollars, which is about, what, $5 million in today's dollars. And he, he has absolutely the opposite reaction. He says, John, that's no problem. I know where we can get a million dollars. And indeed, right after our conversation, he'll go ask Rose Woods how much they have in their slush fund. And a few days later, he's actually trying to raise money by selling an ambassadorship. So anyway, uh, the, the March 21st conversation, as I say, is where I really kind of thought I figured out who Richard Nixon was. But I also put in, tried to put him in a position that he couldn't ignore what I was saying. Because at one point I told him, as, as it progressed, I said, Mr. President, people are going to go to jail uh, as a result of this. And he said, like who? And rather than point the finger, I just pointed it right at myself. I said, like me. And he said, oh, no, no, you can't. And I said, well, Mr. President, I've been all over this thing like a blanket. Uh, and, and he wants to argue with me uh, whether I have committed any crime or not. So that, but as I say, I knew I was putting him in a position where his White House counsel comes in and 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 says he's on his way to jail. That he'd have to do something with it. And and what he did is he stopped talking to me. Uh, and that's I now know what what happened next because I've listened and and actually uh, transcribed all of those thousand conversations he has relating to Watergate. And that results in a series of conversations with Haldeman and Ehrlichman that follow in which uh, they're trying to figure out what to do with me. And they keep coming back to the same point, place. And they just decide I'll be a pretty good scapegoat. Just so they lay it off on me. 
And I get wind of that, and I never talk to the press in my job. But when I did get wind of it, I uh, decided I would deal with it and get them a message. Since they're not talking to me, I'll send them a message. And it was on the front page of the Washington Post and other papers because I had I dictated a short statement to my secretary and had her read it to the Post and the New York Times and the uh, wire services and uh, got the word out and told them, I said, you know, you're, you're making a very serious mistake to select me as a scapegoat because you don't know me, you don't know the, the system, and it is not going to resolve the problem. And, of course, all of these accounts in your book, Blind Ambition, which has been newly released. John Dean joining us from Los Angeles. We appreciate your time. Thank you. My pleasure. You've been listening to C-SPAN's The Sidebar. Be sure to follow C-SPAN and C-SPAN Radio on Twitter. And let us know what you'd like to hear about in future episodes by using the hashtag C-SPAN Sidebar. If you like the program, please like, rate, and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. By the way, every C-SPAN podcast is available on the free C-SPAN Radio app for Apple and Android devices, as well as Google Play Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.